0: Uh, good morning, <clears throat> uh, my name is Skip Ryan um, and I was, uh, to my regret, not really, not really to my regret, it's part of my history. I was a Presbyterian minister for 35 years. <clears throat> but all during that, those 35 years, John Yates worked on me, again and again and again, until I finally gave up and my wife and I became Anglicans four years ago. And, and we're really, we're really grateful for that. Um, so, um, let's pray. Lord our God, thank you so much for um, the beauty of this liturgy and the wonder of this day and what it means. Give grace now, we pray, Lord, that the um, words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing to you our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, as I think most of us know, Palm Sunday is the celebration of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem during the last week, the week that we call Holy Week. Sam has made that clear to us. It's a week that is filled with things that we mark As I think Sam said, it's the the week around which the whole Christian life orbits. And we'll see later in the week, uh, Maundy Thursday, when the Passover meal is actually celebrated uh, by Jesus and his uh, disciples. And then of course, Good Friday, when he goes to the cross. And then Easter Sunday, when he rises, uh, rises for all of us, rises in beauty and in glory. just before uh, the people of Israel made their exodus, that is to say, they left the, uh, the slavery of uh, Egypt, they experienced what is called the Passover, where the angel of death passed over the Jewish homes and prepared them for the safety that was coming when they left Egypt. Moses put his staff over the Red Sea, and the seas separated to allow the people to cross in safety. And so, Palm Sunday is the marking of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, just several days before he was crucified, as we said. This is the third time that Jesus had come to Jerusalem, Um, other than the time he came when he was a small boy of 12 years old. And when he comes, that last time, he rides in on a donkey. And he does so in order to intend that he is fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." This is the coming of the king to the capital of the kingdom, we might say. And waving palm branches was a way of sort of celebrating something. It actually was 160 years old, but now it was brought into the celebration of this triumphal entry of Jesus. It, It might be like, you know, when you're so excited about something, you might go. And this was a way in which people were demonstrating their excitement and their joy at the fact that Jesus was coming. What I want us to do today is building on this great and wonderful, unbelievable event of the, the king riding into um, his kingdom, I want us to understand what happens next. Because what happens next is very pointed for you and for me. In fact, it might be said that it's an application of all that has just happened, just in the passage right before it um, uh, that we call Palm Sunday. John 20, verse 20 says that there are many going up to Jerusalem and going up is, uh, is quite literal. The Jordan River is 680 feet below sea level and it's 17 miles up from there to Jerusalem. Now, I have traveled this 17 miles. It's not as steep as a mountain climb, but it's a grinding, slow ascent and I'm happy to say that I didn't walk it. I went in a bus. (laughs) Psalm 122 says Jerusalem is the place where the Israelites go up to praise the name of the Lord. But there is, interestingly enough, another and more figurative way to speak of going up. We might say, for example, that our congressman goes up to Washington. It's a a symbolic way of saying he is going to do something important, so he's going up. And in a way, what seems to be happening here is something Jesus recognizes as very important. Greeks are coming in to Jerusalem for the Passover. Note this, it's very important. It wasn't just the Israelites were coming, But the Gentiles were also coming up. And they represent, in a way, the whole world, which is not Jewish. So that the Jewish uh, community was going to have to come to understand that the Gospel which Jesus had introduced, and the death he is about ready to die, and the resurrection he is about ready to experience, that these things are not for them alone, but they belong to the world to a world of Gentiles who are coming from far places, perhaps, because they want to see what the Passover is all about. Perhaps they were attracted by uh, the Jewish religion's uh, uh, um, idea of monotheism. Uh, Very winsome to the Greeks because, in fact, they had a panoply of gods who, frankly, had not done them much good. And they're not believers, but they're called God-fearers. In China today, there's a, a movement called culture Christians. Not cultural, but culture Christians. They are elite intellectuals, professors, and scholars. And they are realizing today the intellectual, moral, and spiritual bankruptcy of modern China, where after 70 years of communism, The country has been robbed of its soul. And they see great value in the Christian faith to shape their own culture, to give it coherence. These culture Christians are not Christians themselves, but they believe that Christianity could deepen the integrity of their ethical, political, and educational common life. Perhaps we should call these people today Chinese God-fearers. The Gentile God-fearers had heard about Jesus. And they went to the disciple Philip, perhaps because he had a Greek name, and they said, we wish to see Jesus. Philip tells Andrew, and Andrew tells Jesus. It's a strange request, isn't it? We wish to see Jesus, because they could see Jesus on any street corner in Jerusalem. But obviously, they didn't want just to see him, did they? They wanted to have a conversation with him. We wish to talk with Jesus. We want to get to know him. We want to understand something of his teaching. The word wish here means earnest desire. It's something that they really want. They are earnest seekers. And perhaps they're coming not just to learn about the Jewish culture, but they are also coming because they want to talk with Jesus about faith and about life on a more personal uh, and, and deeply important level to them. You know, I think there may be some God-fearers here this morning. People who, who revere God, who, who believe in God, but actually have not understood that God's son came to die for us and to move into that family of faith. Perhaps you're one of those. And in that case, I would just encourage you to listen to what we're saying here and to see where you might fit in to this tremendous story about Christ. It's a non sequitur that Jesus Gives, isn't it? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, he says that right after uh, Andrew has said, there are Greeks here that want to see you. The Son of Man is now to be glorified. I mean, it doesn't really fit together, does it? It's like uh, saying, Sam is going up to Philadelphia to watch the uh, Philadelphia 76ers play. And the person he's with says, do you know it's a full moon tonight? I mean, it just doesn't quite come together, does it? But the response actually here makes great sense. The glory in John's Gospel most often means the glory of Jesus on the cross. That's very important for us to understand. But how can glory mean the cross? We think of glory as fame, don't we? You get your 15 minutes of fame and then you step off the stage. But in the background of this word, glory, is a word which literally means wait. The Hebrew word is kabod. I like that word. It's fun to say, kabod. It's actually an onomatopoeia. You know what it means? It, it, that means it's, it's, uh, it sounds like what it means, kabod, wait. In theology, God is the sum of all of his perfections. So Jesus is saying that in Christ on the cross, God's perfections are seen. His infinite, he's all-powerful, merciful, just, patient, unchangeable, beautiful, and above all, God is love. On the cross, the full weight of the perfections of God meet the full weight of our sin. Do you see that? Everything that God is, is in Christ on the cross. And everything that we are, is with Christ on the cross. Where he dies for us and exalts his Father's perfections. You know, it's fair to say, I think, that the cross of Christ is the heaviest thing in the world. In the Old Testament, the wilderness was where Israel spent 40 years. God's presence was in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and then later in the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle and the temple were where God's presence, His glory were shown. In the New Testament, the glory of God is shown in His Son, who is, the Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews says, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. In the Old Testament, the glory of God is revealed in a place of sacrifice, the tabernacle and the temple. In the New Testament, the glory of God is revealed also in a place of sacrifice, the cross of Jesus. You know, in the Roman Empire, the cross was a place of shame. Only the worst of criminals hung on the cross, especially the despicable enemies of the emperor. It is so profoundly important that we understand this morning, based on this passage, that the shame of the cross is the place of glory. When Judas sneaks out to betray him, Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says it this way, it is not just that the shame of the cross is inevitably followed by the glory of exaltation, but that the glory is already fully displayed in that shame. Do you see that? The glory of Jesus is displayed in all that he does to die for our sins, to enter into the shame of those who are going to be cut off from God. So when Andrew told Jesus, there are Greeks here who want to see you, it means that the non-Jewish world is going to Christ because Jesus is going to the glory of the cross. I will make you a light for the nations, Isaiah prophesies, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, right when Jesus was there in Jerusalem, in the previous chapter in John's gospel, says to his colleagues, fellow Pharisees, that it is better for one man to die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but that he may gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. I'm not sure what Caiaphas meant by that but prophetically what he was saying is that Jesus was going to do just what he said. He was going to gather into one the people of God. And right here in our passage, the Pharisees are very frustrated by Jesus and his obvious effect on the people. They say, look, the world is going after him. They begin to see what this means, that the Gentiles are coming to Jesus so that they understand that Jesus is going to go to the Gentiles and the world is going to come to Jesus. And they don't like it. Jesus himself said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Where was the cross in relation to the city of Jerusalem? There's some debate about that, but many people think it was outside the city. And the reason for that could be a number of different things, but one clearly is to show that the glory of the cross was to spread beyond the walls of the Jewish city and into the Gentile world. The cross, you see, is a sign that Jesus is in the world, but for the world. And there we find out, as we begin to understand our own place in this, we begin to understand that what goes deepest to the heart goes widest to the world. And the question for us this morning is, has Jesus, has the gospel, has the truth gone deeply to our hearts? And as Jesus begins to move the discussion toward... uh, toward uh, those of us who need to hear the truth. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he's saying, and I'm not much of a farmer, but I think it's this. The husk that surrounds the seed must break open in order for the seed to become a small shoot and then a shaft of wheat so when it's planted the husk comes off and the seed begins to grow to give life and Jesus point is that the husk of Jewish provincialism must fall away in other words you could say it positively the Jews have protected the seed they have protected the gospel they've protected the glory of the truth for a long time, but now things are going to be different. The husk must open and the seed must come up. So that the plant that bears the wheat may grow to provide food for the world. God God had told Abraham 2,000 years earlier, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul points this verse out in Galatians chapter 3, He points out the fact that the seed is singular in what Abraham said. The seed is the true and singular seed of God who must die that new life for a world of Gentiles may spring out of him. In other words, the primary meaning of seed is, of course, Jesus. And the cross uniquely belongs to Jesus in the sense that only he can tear down the power of sin and death by bringing to that power the weight of God's perfections. But he is also insisting that those of us who follow him must walk with him. So Jesus applies this truth to us, you see. He says, he who loves his life loses it and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to eternal life. Now, hate is a relative term indicating a a kind of priority. It doesn't mean you hate yourself. It means that you love something else first. If you hold on to your own life first, it's like taking a, a, a fist of wet sand at the beach and squeezing it to hold on to it. And what happens? The sand oozes out from all your fingers and you can't keep it. That's what he's saying. Do you know how hunters in Africa trap monkeys? Well, they have a jar. It's a a jar with a round bottom like this, and then a narrow neck. And they put a banana in the jar. And along comes a monkey, and he sees the banana. And he puts his hand in the jar to retrieve the banana. And then he, he tries to pull his hand out. But the neck, you see, is too narrow for him to do it and he will not let go of that banana even when the trappers come and take him off to the zoo. And, and dear friends, that's a picture really of what many of us are like. When we hold on to our stuff, to our own life, to the way we define our life in the world, and we will not let go to gain something that is so much better The famous quote from Jim Elliot, the missionary to Ecuador, is so apt here. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep it, my friends. You won't keep it. And if you give it up, you will find that you get something far, far better. The glory of God in the cross of Jesus is better than anything. Anything that we might lose by following Him. The words lose, lose and destroy, by the way, are the same in the Greek language. So, if you hold on to your life, you destroy it. But if you give your life away, you gain the very life of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Is this hard to do? You should pick up your Book of Common Prayer and throw it at me if I say, oh, yes, it's very easy to do. It was not easy for Jesus to do. And it's not easy for us to do. And so, Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The cross isn't easy for Jesus. And it's not easy for us who follow him to that cross. When Jesus says, follow me, it's not a declarative sentence. It would be a good idea if you followed me. Nor is it a question. Will you please follow me? No, it's an imperative. It's a command. Follow me. The Lord and King of the world is calling me. You know, the word calling comes from a Latin word that's vocare. And vocare is where we get the idea of vocation. And we think sometimes of our vocation as that to which Jesus may have called us, but it's the calling of our ordinary lives, our daily lives from, you know, nine to five, the work that we do. And while vocation may include that, that is not the primary meaning. The primary meaning of being vocaried by God, having a vocation given by Him, is that my identity is being called to Jesus before I am called to anything else. I was talking this week with Kurt Yeo, who is our church's executive director. He asked how my sermon was coming along, and we talked for a few minutes about this passage. Well, you may know that Kurt and Hillary and their family have followed the Lord to Indonesia, to Hong Kong, and to the most dangerous place of all, New York City. (laughs) Kurt said, but the issue isn't where we have gone. Hear this now. The issue isn't where we have gone. The issue, Kurt said, is are we being called by the Lord to that place? Which means, are we being called to the Lord first. Regardless of where he may send me, regardless of where I may go to graduate school, regardless of what career I may plan, what babies I have, what family I grow, all these callings are beautiful and valuable, but they all depend on the essential calling of being one with Jesus, of being called by him. You see, the Lord will place us in our tasks but before that he will call us to follow him to where he goes. So you see the question is are we following Jesus to the cross? Are we prepared to let the outer husk of our identities fall away? Only then can we really know our place and our task in this world. At the end of the gospel of John, Jesus is talking to Peter and the Lord has just told Peter of the sacrifice that Peter is to make as the lead Apostle taking the gospel to the world in the church. And the gospel writer John says this, after saying this Jesus said to him, follow me. But being called as the lead Apostle must mean he is called to follow Jesus which means that the outer husk of Peter's life might die. And Peter turns, and he looks at John, who who is right there, and he says, what about him? Isn't he supposed to come too? And Jesus answers, if it is my will until he stays, until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, we mustn't compare our callings, our individual vocations in our life. We only can compare the wonder that we have all, let me put it this way, we have all been known from all eternity by God as being identified with him in an eternal calling that can never be taken away from us. We are Christ ones. And though it blows the mind to say it, We were Christ ones before the dawn of time. I thought as I was preaching this sermon, excuse me, well, I am preaching it now, and I still think this, but as I was preparing for it, I wanted, I kept wanting to soften it, you know? Well, you know, the call of Jesus uh, really means that we give up a bit of our time and our money to serve Him. And then I thought, How can you soften the demand of Jesus' words? How can you do that? This is an outrageously demanding call from the Lord Himself that we follow Him to the cross. That we die, you see, to all the pretty things that fill our lives. We don't necessarily sell everything we have, but we do ask the Lord to give us the power of the Holy Spirit To do what St. Augustine said we must, to order our loves. To put first things first. Now I talked to someone after the first service and he said, Skip, I I just don't know how I'm going to do that. It it really is, it seems impossible to me. And by the way, he said, how are you doing? with that and I said you know uh, I'm doing what the Lord gives me the joy to do day by day and that's a real key to this. This isn't your work. It, ultimately it's not your power that will cause you to give up your life and follow Jesus to the cross, it's his power. And how do we come to understand His power working in our lives? We pray. Please, Lord, do it. Now, friends, we have said all of our lives, all of our Christian lives, I will pray for you. And we may mean it, we may not, you know. And we talk about times of prayer. We talk about prayer in church. But you know what? The word prayer is much, much more important than we ever think it is. It is it is the words upon which the Lord delivers to us what we ask for. Prayer is fundamental to our whole Christian lives. Don't, don't think of it as just something we do with the backhand. Pray that Jesus will give you the Holy Spirit who will free your hearts from all the things you cling to, all the husks, so that you might become the seed that spurts out and begins to give life to the world. Let me, let me end this way. Do you know the word cruciform? I love the word, it's beautiful. It means in the shape of the cross. Many cathedrals and churches are built in the uh, shape of the cross. As ours is here, you see, there are the transepts they're called. But they, they symbolize the horizontal beam of the cross with Jesus on it, but the Lord doesn't just want the beautiful symbolism of a a cruciform building. He wants people, He wants people in that building to have crucified lives, to live by the shape of the cross, and He wants for our church this church, the church that in only four years Barbara and I have come to love, this church to be a cruciform people who follow Jesus to the glory of the cross. Lord our God, help us, um, help us. We, we don't even know where to begin. These things are too much for us. And so we beg you, Lord, we beg you in this prayer to come to our hearts, to free them from the husks that we have around them, and to allow our lives to become beautiful and life-giving for you. Amen.